the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I have two really important announcements, so please stay tuned for these. First of all, it's a privilege in this episode to interview Dr. Gary Schnichter, who was a professor of mine in undergrad and a big part of why I decided to pursue biblical studies. He's written a fantastic new book called Old Testament Use of Old Testament, a book-by-book guide published by Zondervan. And for podcast listeners in U.S. in the U.S. and Canada, we are giving away, well, uh, Gary is giving away uh, four copies of his book. So it's a great opportunity to get hold of this 1,000-plus page resource that goes for about $75 on Zondervan's site. We're going to run this just for a couple of weeks and make sure you get it, um, get in on the chance to win. And you can do so by sharing our Facebook post or tweet about this episode. Um, also, if you could tag Zondervan Academic and OnScript, uh, either on Facebook or Twitter, uh, for a chance to win. So you share the episode post and tag Zondervan Academic and OnScript, and you'll be entered to win. Second of all, we have a live event with Vince Bantu on Monday, 22nd of November, 8 p.m., around 8 p.m. in San Antonio. Uh, we've got information on that on our website, onscript.study forward slash events. We'll be discussing Vince's book, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. And that will be a really fun chance to connect in person um, at this event. And so if you're in the San Antonio area for SBL, AAR, please stop by. We'd love to see you. Okay, let's uh, get on with the episode. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. Today, our guest is Dr. Gary Schnichter. Gary is professor of Old Testament at Cairn University in Philadelphia and is the author of two major works on the Old Testament, the Torah story and Old Testament use of the Old Testament, which we'll discuss today. Both of these are published by Zondervan. Gary also hosts Hebrew Day by Day, which you can subscribe to on Twitter or YouTube, which offers a short explanation of a Hebrew text each day. And you can also connect with that at HebrewDayByDay.com. Finally, Gary was one of my professors during my undergrad, and I was a TA for him way back in the day. So it's a real privilege to have him on the podcast. Gary, welcome to OnScript. Matt, really great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, I I just want to say what an influence you've had on my academic journey. I had gone to, to Israel for a semester uh, as an undergrad back in 99. And I came back from Israel with with a real passion for biblical studies, and I wanted to pursue that. And and so I signed up for a class that you had with uh, on Deuteronomy. Oh, and that was a great course. It was. It was. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things as I was reflecting on this in preparation for this interview is, is the fact that one of the real emphases in that Deuteronomy class was interbiblical exegesis and illusion and echo within the book of Deuteronomy. And, um, and the class that really lit my fire in Israel was on inner, it was an intertestamental literature class. And the thing that fascinated me the most in that class was the attention to the ways that early Jewish writers were using the Old Testament 
and how that's similar to the ways New Testament writers are using the Old Testament. I know you have some nuances of that in your book, um, but it but it was that inner biblical phenomenon that really got me excited. And so coming back and then taking your Deuteronomy class was was such a good segue and kind of sent me into this. Uh, uh, it sent me in this direction of biblical studies. Well, I mean, it, it's hard to believe now because mostly when I teach these things these days, it's in graduate courses and seminary yeah. courses. But, you know, what you're talking about was an upper level undergraduate course. Yeah. And I think back to the early 90s and, and kind of or the late 90s. Um, yeah. And it's really great to think about how the students, you know, these are undergraduate students, how they're yeah. responding to these interconnections yeah. within the scriptures. And it was just, it was yeah. a lot of fun. And yeah. to have students like yourself, uh, it's it's hardly a job to have to teach something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was thrilling. And, you know, I remember one of the metaphors used in, um, when I was in Israel was of, of runner plants, where they run underneath the soil and then shoot up in different places. And that that's kind of how I experienced the Bible then after your class and this class in Israel. Well, thank so that you for remembering a... that because I don't remember it. And that's <laughs> such a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's helpful. So, so what, what drew you into um, Scripture's reuse of Scripture? Um, was there a particular interbiblical discovery that sparked the quest or what about it initially caught your attention? Well, I, in my graduate studies, I, I was doing some uh, research on the Torah reading cycle. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there's a, a part of the annual uh, Torah reading cycle uh, with some of the festivals is alluded to in Philo. So it's pre-Christian. And so mm-hmm. that part of the Torah reading cycle caught my attention because um, those Torah passages and then the half Torah, the prophets passages that are read together each week, did an investigation to see if the 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 use of those two together mm-hmm. within the uh, ancient synagogue circles might have caused some of those texts to be read together in the New Testament. And um, I did a lot of work on it, but it was really not quite the right question. And mm. I think I came to realize along the way that um, I could never be sure if the New Testament was bringing together the same two texts that the Torah reading cycle was doing, because there was a more fundamental relationship between those texts already. Right. So in other words, if the New Testament used those texts and the Torah reading cycle used those texts together, that might just be two different independent symptoms of texts that are related at a much deeper level. Right. Okay. So yeah. So in other words, the prophetic text may already be reading the Pentateuch text anyway. And so that's why they're brought together, not because they're brought together in the Torah reading cycle. Right. So the Torah reading yeah. cycle wasn't a cause. I mean, it might be yeah. a cause also, yeah. but it's already an effect. And so there's no way to know if the New Testament authors are bringing those same two texts together because of the Torah reading cycle, or if it's because right. they're already related. <laughs> so for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the Torah reading cycle, what is that? Well, it's, um, it's, uh, the annual cycle and the three-year cycle, the three-year cycle, they would read through Torah in three years. It's a little bit shorter on Sabbath to do it that way. So like in the synagogue? In the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And the annual cycle, they would read through Torah in set sections each year. 
and uh, it's a cycle because uh, all the um, practicing Jews would use the same Torah and the same Haftorah. Now, legend has it that um, during the um, oppression of the um, the Greek rulers, mm-hmm. that it was a capital crime to read Torah. So mm-hmm. legend has it that that's when they started reading through these prophet passages. Mm-hmm. And then once they got back under the Maccabees and the good old nice guys there, then they could read Torah and prophets together again. Oh, uh, so that part's just all probably made up, but. Yeah. So that's the phenomenon. Um, and so I want to, we're going to be talking about your book, Old Testament Use of Old Testament. And the subtitle is a book by book guide. And first of all, this is a very substantial book, over a thousand pages. Um, this this must have uh, taken you quite quite a bit of time to to work through. Maybe just talk about the process of of writing a book of this size and and what you found exciting and thrilling about it or challenging. Yeah, I I, I have to say it was uh, no chore to write. I mean, it looks kind of like a dictionary or something awful. Uh, like that, but it was it was something I'm very interested in. So uh, I'd been studying this area since uh, the late 1990s, and so when um, Zondervan approached me about writing this book, I was thrilled to do it. So it kind of took two decades of prep work, so to speak, hmm. and then just a few years of um, actual formal research to put together what I've been doing over these couple of decades. Um. That's a really good question. Um, h- how are they related? I mean, h- how, how does one find these relationships? Yeah. The, the truth of the matter is, I mean, it's really just from teaching through the scriptures again and again mm-hmm. and being interested or tuned into this sort of connection. And I, I began early on to keep lists that I would use for uh, students to pick to do the research papers. So mm-hmm. I've had for many years had my graduate students doing research papers and I would give them a list. Here's places where this scroll of the uh, of Israel scriptures uses earlier scriptures. Write your paper on one of these. And mm-hmm. what my goal was to have students do that is uh, students could actually be thinking with the biblical author so that yeah. the student is forced to put themselves into sort of the biblical author's historical context, if you will, Mm -hmm. and think with the biblical author who's using texts that are authoritative to that author to um, promote a message for their own day. So so I think for a lot of listeners, they'll be roughly familiar with the Old Testament, or the New Testament use of the Old Testament, which is a pretty popular kind of scholarship in the wake of Richard Hayes and all the work that he did in that area and other scholars as well. And then, you know, a bit that this this phenomenon has been explored within the Old Testament by Michael Fishbane and Yair Zakovich in Hebrew, but but by and large, like it hasn't taken off in the same way within Old Testament studies, at least in a in a more comprehensive way. We don't see like major books on on this to the same extent. So why do you think there has, at least by comparison, been less attention to Old Testament use of Old Testament? I mean, I think one of my friends uh, um, said to me years ago, was really wrestling through some chapters in Isaiah unrelated to this topic. 
And he said, well, you know how hard it is to do a chapter of Romans. That's how hard it is to do a chapter of Isaiah. But there's only 16 chapters in Romans. So I think just this, the size of the Hebrew scriptures at large mm-hmm. explains why there's been, I mean, I mean, you know this, Matt, a large number of dissertations, monographs, articles. There's silos built all over the place on Zechariah's use of the Hebrew scriptures or Joel's yeah. use of the Hebrew scriptures and so on. Um, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of these dissertations. So there's, yeah. there's no lack of interest in the, uh, the use of scripture within Israel's scriptures, but it's such a daunting task yeah. that um, you just don't find much beyond, say, a particular uh, focus on this book of the Bible. An exception right. would be, you know, you mentioned Michael Fishbane's very well-known and influential book, uh, in Interpretation in Ancient Israel. I mean, but mm-hmm. that that even is, I want to say this in a very nice way, that book uh, is a lot different from the, the book that I've written because Fishbane's book, and again, this is, I mean this in a nice way, but it sounds terrible. He's He's cherry picking in a sense, because what he's looking for is he's focused on cases of uh, the use of scripture that illustrate uh, the kinds of interpretations that were later used in rabbinic circles, uh, sure. especially legal interpretation and narrative interpretation. And so those are the two main categories. He had a couple of other categories as well, but he wasn't focused on kind of uh, th- this book that I've written is focused entirely differently. It's um, yeah. I'm asking, how does this scroll of the Hebrew scriptures use scripture? And I go through each scroll asking in its own way, what is distinct about the way this scroll uses the scriptures? So it's a very different kind of project than Michael Fishbane's was. But I I, want to say, you know, you mentioned Hayes and Fishbane, you're talking to me. I mean, I'm embarrassed to be in the same sentence with them. I mean, because their (laughs) books are so um, influential on me. They're they're such great scholars. And um, I've benefited enormously from a close reading of both their works on this subject matter. Yeah, now it's interesting to hear the the difference with Fishbane. It sounds like his is, it's not like it's not ground up, but he is starting with certain, he, he's looking for the points of contact with later forms of biblical interpretation. And you're starting, first of all, with the question, how are they reading scripture without any attempt at categorization, you know, from the beginning, and then drawing conclusions based on that survey of of how books use scripture, right? Yeah, and of course, I'm approaching it using the framework of these scrolls of the scripture. So, I mean, that's very uh, biased, and I'm bringing a a thing onto it. But it's just, um, James Kugel did an interview of, uh, not an interview, a review of Fishbane's book when it came out, Mm -hmm. and he made this one point. Fishbane has this um, chapter, I don't know if you've looked at his book lately, but the, one of the, his opening chapters is scribal variants, and Fish <laughs> um, Kugel accused Fishbane of anything that didn't fit well into his rabbinical categories. He just stuck in that chapter. <laughs> so then he had these other two chapters that were really clean. That's probably an over exaggeration on Kugel's part. I I do think you know that does show. I think there's some truth to it. And so yeah. Fishbane was really looking to see the the predecessors of the kinds of interpretation that are very familiar in rabbinic circles. And and how would you distinguish your work from what Richard Hayes is doing, or how do they complement each other? 
Well, I, I mean, R- R- Richard Hayes, he has the title of a couple of his books are reading backwards is kind of the language he's used in recent years to get at these echoes. He also is his working on echoes and some of his echoes are very subtle. And I mean, all of us love his books because he can see things that no one has ever seen. And it's, you know, he's able to bring it out in a very convincing way. And I, I mean, I, I love Richard Hayes's works. I mean, it's mm-hmm. been very helpful for me to see somebody that's so tuned in to mm-hmm. the scriptures and these subtle ways. The, the book that I've written is not really focused on those subtle echoes so much. So Richard Hayes uses the term volume. I'm looking only at ones that are in high volume. Right. So lots of um, parallels that have evidence that we can test and evaluate. Mm-hmm. So kind of across the Hebrew scriptures, there's a lot of other subtle things going on that get passed by in a book like this. So this book doesn't do everything, but it it is looking for the more high volume interrelationships among the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, and that's one of the things I found really helpful about the book is the way that it, it in any case, individual case of interbiblical exegesis that you were observing, you you rank them in terms of how high the volume was. Like, you know, is this a a, a very strong case of reuse where you have like several terms that are significant that are reused in a similar pattern or something like that. Uh, so that's a really helpful approach. And you describe what you're doing as attending to scriptural exegesis. So what what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that's, I, I don't mean exactly the same thing Michael Fishbane means, but it's closer to what he means there, where in, in the end of each chapter of this book that I've written, there's filters. And the mm-hmm. filters are sort of screening off things that are either, they're an illusion for sure, but they're they're not interpretive. They're just moving the same thing forward. So they're not doing anything to it. And there's also um, things that are, uh, to use Richard Hayes's word, where it's less volume. So we're not right. sure if it's an illusion or just a coincidental use of something similar. So the filters are filtering off these lesser possible relationships that many people have studied in the past. And really the chapters themselves are just focusing on those cases that are more uh, empirically verifiable. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that it's all science. I think it's mostly art. Science is only a really a small part of this. And I think anybody who, um, you know, when we have engineers doing work with literature like this, we can always tell what the person's first degree was in. Um, So it's, it's, it's definitely literary and artistic, but the use of the same roots, for example, in nouns and verbs, those are um, checks and balances to help not just let someone like myself in this case, my imagination go wild and just read all these connections into the text. Yeah, that that's helpful. And, and I appreciate you saying that it's an art, not a science, because you know, one of, one of the temptations, I guess, with looking at interbiblical exegesis is to, to simply come up with a list of criteria so you can decide if this is, in fact, echoing another or alluding to or exegeting a prior text, but it's, it's never that straightforward. Yeah, I think years ago I read Porter was saying in one of his books on the New Testament use of the old that there's lots of these lists of criteria, but in actual practice, people don't actually do that. Yeah. I mean, unless they're a doctoral student who has a you know, a, a advisor that's really on them to show yeah. <laughs> each case. I think that 
when we're pushed to it, we need to come up with and prove, no, no, this is really an illusion. No, this mm-hmm. is really an echo. But sure. I think on our day-to-day studies, I don't think we're, you know, anybody that's sitting around with a list of criteria probably doesn't know what they're doing anyway. <laughs> um, and now, one of the one of the challenges in looking at scriptures, reuse of scripture in the Old Testament is direction of influence and dependence. So, um, I mean, as you well know, and many of our listeners will know, scholars cannot agree on on which texts may have been written before other texts. And so, what what are some ways that you navigated that? Maybe if you have specific examples of where you could see a direction of influence, um, a clear direction direction of influence. Yeah, and, and so I, I looked at it all. Um, I believe the influence is real, Matt, um, but. I looked at it all in terms of dependence rather than influence mm-hmm. because sure. influence is sort of forward looking and we can't really quantify that. Whereas dependence, mm-hmm. we can more get at. So talking about direction of dependence, um, I guess a lot of texts, we can't tell, we can tell they're definitely related, mm-hmm. but there's not enough evidence in the relationship itself to tell. We need the right kind of evidence uh, to be able to tell Uh, direction of dependence. Hmm. And so that comes in many forms. And uh, I don't mean to be such a pain, but I mean, nobody can give a list of, you know, here's the list of X number of things that we can see Hmm. dependence. The variables are so great. Uh, So it's easier to talk about examples of the kinds of things that can show uh, dependence. So one example would be um, in Deuteronomy 10, 19, it says, you shall love the residing foreigner for you were residing foreigners in the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Well, there's obviously some kind of a relationship between that and uh, Leviticus 19, um, 34, you shall love them, that is residing foreigners, as yourself, for you were residing foreigners in the land of Egypt. So something's going on. And uh, w- what is commonly said is that uh, those that like for studies that say date the book of Deuteronomy before Leviticus, mm-hmm. they'll just say, oh, see here, um, Leviticus 19 is based off of Deuteronomy. But that really doesn't make sense when we look at it, the syntax, because mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy 10.19, it uses the definite direct object marker, et. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you shall love the residing foreigner. But in Leviticus 19, it uses a very rare syntax. Uh, it's mm. only actually three times in the whole Bible. Um, is It uses the la to mark the direct object. You shall love lo, him. Mm. So it's this, um, we almost never see one text using another makes it more ambiguous. We right. must always see syntactical disambiguation. Mm. So that syntactical evidence points very strongly that Deuteronomy 10 is relying upon Leviticus 19. So that's mm. just syntactical yeah, evidence yeah. that doesn't really have anything to do with dating the text at large, but it's kind of nitty gritty. Yeah. No, that's a helpful example. Um, you know, I think when I was doing some work in Chronicles and one of the questions I had was the relationship between Second Chronicles 2, which is talking about where, where Solomon is saying the temple I'm about to build must be great because God is greater than all the other gods. And it seemed to be echoing uh, a particular psalm. And, and I was trying to work out like, well, which, 
can I figure out which way this is going? And it seems like I could make at least a preliminary argument that a Chronicles is drawing from the Psalms because A, it draws from Psalms quite frequently, and B, it seems to substitute God for a temple for God. And, and it's more likely that you would go that direction than substitute God for temple. So the likelihood of substitution was a criteria in that case, but you're right. It's going to be different in every case. It might be syntactical like you described there. So, so kind of the rules I'm playing by in this book, I'm not starting with the prefabricated date of any book. I yeah. mean, so I'm, I'm taking each case of potential dependence on its own merits. And so a lot of cases I have to leave up in the air just as parallels. But another kind of evidence that sometimes is very helpful is when we have uh, what we call interpretive blends. I got this term, Michael Fishbane used the term legal blends, where one legal text blends two earlier legal texts, and then the interpretive sum is greater than the parts. But actually, legal blend is actually a subset of interpretive blends, because this phenomenon of the author reading two earlier uh, scriptural traditions together is across every genre of the Christian Bible. It's very commonplace. So when we have cases of three texts in relationship, oftentimes we can use triangulation and we can tell by comparing the details in a close reading, which one has to be dependent on the others. Yeah. Well, I was just wondering if you have examples of, of that at work. I thought you would ask that. So um, <laughs> one really helpful example is Joel 2, uh, and I'll just read two lines out of it. Verse 13, he says, tear your heart, not your clothing. Turn to the Lord your God, for he is, and here's the one illusion, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in covenantal loyalty, who relents from punishment. Who knows? He may turn and relent. Now, that last couple of lines there you might recognize sounds a lot like some phrases in the book of Jonah, which is very well known. And um, then that those together sound very similar in a lot of respects to Exodus 32 and 34. So what we have then in this case is we can see that uh, there's verbatim parallels from remote parts of Exodus 32 and 34 brought together in Jonah. And it has to be that direction because the phrases are longer in Jonah than they are in Exodus. So Jonah and Joel are sharing something together, and one of them has to be getting it from the other one. And then you have Joel sharing things with the king of Nineveh. Who knows? He may turn and relent. The king of Nineveh in Jonah 3 said that. So, so then it, all of a sudden, these three line up. Yeah, so yeah. Jonah, the author of Jonah, is using Exodus and using remote parts of these traditions that came to be found in Exodus. Right. And then Joel is using remote parts of the book of Jonah. And both Jonah, the author of Jonah, and Joel are blending together these remote contexts in making this, in the case of Jonah, a narrative that's quite funny and satirical. And in the case of Joel, it's the big punchline of the whole book. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, rend your heart. That's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Yeah, that's a really helpful example. I like the the idea of thinking in terms of drawing from disparate parts. So Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. So it's more likely that they're going to come together in a later text than the other way around. 
It's even more than that because it's it's not just from remote parts. It's mm-hmm. also bringing together embedded speeches and frame narrative. So it's even more, the evidence is even stronger than just from sure. remote parts. It's So it really is pointing to, it, it doesn't have to be the whole book of Exodus, but something exactly like the canonical form of Exodus 32 through 34 is the likely source for the author of the book of Jonah. And and that, that touches on another phenomenon that you observed, and you have a, a section in the end of your book where you, you have diagrams of these different networks that you noticed. And don't make me sound like a conspiracy theorist here, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this isn't like beautiful mind type thing where you were just mapping all of these random connections that no one else could possibly. I had to ask my editors at yeah. that point. I said, does this look crazy? Do, does yeah. this look like I'm insane? Because I don't want to put it in the book. Right. If all yeah. of a sudden people are going to open this and think, this is insane. Yeah. Well, it's good to have the sanity check from your editor. But, but I do think that I, I found it helpful in just highlighting the ways that certain texts have an inordinate amount of influence on other texts. Was that something you anticipated when you started this project, or or did it really start to stand out as you got through that certain texts are functioning in a in an especially authoritative way, in, in a way that like not every text does within the Old Testament? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is yes and no. I mean, I, I can look back, and I've used the word network in print, I mean, over 20 mm-hmm. years ago. So this idea was in my head for a long time, but I, I haven't been actively pursuing this. This is a product of this particular research project. I think in a more simple way to put it than the diagrams even is favorite texts. Yeah. And by favorite texts, I mean favorite texts of the biblical authors. And so sometimes uh, later biblical authors are going to go back to the very same text as a go-to, but mm-hmm. then would have been drawn to it by the receptor text. So a receptor mm-hmm. text that interpreted an earlier text now all of a sudden leads another later um, biblical writer to go back to the earlier text. So we have these many receptor texts working with the same donor text. Mm -hmm. And so that winds up creating, uh, I use the word network because there's more going on than just any two. Once we have a half dozen texts on the table that are all doing the same kinds of things, there's a, a larger synergy and momentum and interpretive momentum that gets attached connotatively to some of these. I think we can at least sense that something more is going on sometimes. Anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, just the fact that you've got Joel reusing Jonah, but then also drawing from other, like, particular texts in Jonah, drawing from other texts in Jonah, which is itself drawing from uh, multiple texts in Exodus. Yeah, I I can see the momentum. And one of the questions I had is, what this phenomenon of network texts and more broadly um, scriptural exegesis tells you about the nature of scripture? That's a really good question. I mean, that particular example, there's, um, I call it the, I think I borrowed this from someone else, but uh, speaking of, he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger mm-hmm. as the attribute formula. Mm-hmm. There are a large number of allusions to the attribute formula. Yeah. And so among those, you know, Joel and Jonah stand out they have some unique characteristics, unlike any other uses. But there's a, a lot of things going on with all that, because once you have a psalm use the attribute formula, then how do we know that um, the attribute formula 
the part that gets used over and over again isn't just part of the uh, lyrical diffusion of Israel's mm. worship. Um, how do we know that people are going back to the book of Exodus? And so that's where um, we don't know. So in yeah. many cases, it really could just be now part of this worship genre, this um, lyrical diffusion. So we need some other evidence, like I said, in the case of Jonah, mm-hmm. of using the um, frame narrative as well as the embedded discourse so that that tells us, no, no, this isn't just from a lyrical diffusion that somebody gets mm-hmm. at the temple. This is mm-hmm. something related to a text. But I think, um, you know, your questions really focus more broadly than all that. I think mm-hmm. that um, this idea of canonical consciousness, and I don't mm-hmm. mean anything technical by it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I more just mean that there's, I think the cumulative evidence, I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but when we start looking at the Bible this way and start focusing on the uh, even the filters at the end of the chapters that are not exegetically oriented, those are just lesser illusions. But that points to this pervasive sense of biblical authors wanting to present their messages using these traditional authoritative teachings from, you know, not capital C canon to them, but but there's a sense that these biblical authors tend to be going back to the same text so often that that really does point towards some kind of a, not only a canonical consciousness, but again, these um, movements of interpretation that, you know, and, and it's not like people are just sitting in a room making things up. A, a lot of those scriptures were written under times of duress and external crises, but even in those times of needing to answer the question, uh, crisis of the moment, there is a tendency of biblical writers to not just say something new and innovative, but to speak the message for the day in terms of traditional authoritative teachings of their constituency. Do, do you think that that self-consciousness within scripture, like the consistent awareness of itself, like among later writers looking back to scripture itself, and then that being collected into one book, is unique in ancient Near Eastern literature more broadly? No, I, I would not want to claim that, but um, it, not in itself. For example, when we see um, the Neo-Assyrian royal ideology annals, mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously a stereotyping and a re, you know the um, scribes who are <laughs> commissioned to write these things. They're obviously working with earlier ones as templates. Mm-hmm. So we find a lot of copying but that's a you know it's a different sort of thing. It's been studied, but it's um, I, I think of um, Doug Green's work is really excellent in studying some of those kinds of things. But it's different in the kinds of texts. Um, you know, the Bible's not that kind of a text. I mean, mm-hmm. even if we compare the the books of like say Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, they're uh, they're not like these first person self-aggrandizing. Mm-hmm narratives, and there's more rolled into them. There's prophetic stories and prophetic discourses. Uh, So there is some of the analytic literature in them. We can hear that, but they're operating when they quote Torah or traditions that are later found in Torah, they're operating with a different kind of authority than just borrowing a genre template. I mean, it's it's pushing the the narrator's storyline or message in a very different kind of a way. So yeah, it's not unique, but I, I hesitate to say this part, right. uh, but when other peoples were exiled from their homelands in the ancient world, 
they wound up being assimilated and lost their identity. But there is mm-hmm. something unique about the Hebrew scriptures because there's a that was kind of a, a real reference point to maintain mm-hmm. an identity that exile couldn't take away. And so right. um, however we talk about the restoration, there's some true connection that they're seeing through these um, canonical consciousness and using these scriptural traditions to define their identity as Israel. So, uh, in other words, don't parse me out on that. Yeah, yeah. I won't push you too hard on the on the difference between them, but but it's the the way it's configured is certainly unique. Yeah, I think that the the scriptures themselves form part of this durable identity because they're portable for Israel, and so they um, Israel's. Uh, Judah is not assimilated in the same way that other nations just disappear into the um, sort of ethnic mix of the empire. Uh, I want to switch gears here and do a quick speed round because I have other questions I want to get to. So these are just quick fire questions. Um, What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Um, Reverend Childs' Introduction to the Old Testament of Scripture. Right. That's, that's, That's been selected before. Oh, sorry so about you're, that. You're, I have no, to pick you're, a new one? no, you're in good company. I, I, I'm always interested in what recurs. Uh, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? I think that there's been a lot of um, anachronistic bringing Dead Sea Scrolls ideology back into the later writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's exceptionally unhelpful um, because there's greater and greater confidence now. This isn't a speed run. Sorry. No, it's fine. Yeah, hey, you, you can speak. I'm curious now. Yeah, I want to hear that. Well, I just think that, um, you know, I'm sure that the sectarians, um, the various sectarians, many of them would want to claim sort of an um, ideological place with Ezra and Nehemiah and the mm-hmm. Restoration community. But I think Ezra and Nehemiah would say, we're not saying that. Those mm-hmm. guys are freaks. Get them out of here. So I, I don't think Ezra and Nehemiah would embrace the sort of separatism that the later sectarians devolved Hmm. into. Hmm. So yes, there's some kind of a relationship, but it's very anachronistic to dump all that back into the um, restoration. So I don't know if it should die. I mean, we need to hash it out, but (laughs) it it really is. um, It's very difficult because it has really taken a deep hold in a lot of uh, the scholarship in that area. So that's a, and also, I'll say that's a stay tuned for your forthcoming commentary in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Am, am I correct in that you're writing one? I am. Yeah, I'm working okay. with uh, Baker Academic on that. Okay, so great. It's still more of a twinkle in my eye, but yeah. it, All right. it, it'll be out eventually. Yes. All right. What's the most significant scholarly influence in your work? Uh, influence on, on me? Yeah. This is going to sound boring, but probably, probably Brevard Childs' work. And do you have a favorite novel? Yes. Um, I, I love Catcher on the Rye. Okay. Um, if you weren't a biblical scholar, what's your backup career? <laughs> uh, you know, musician, actor. I'm, I'm digging you know, deep. What, yeah. In high school, I wanted to be a gym teacher. How about that? Okay. All right. I mean, I'm not close to being a gym teacher. Yeah. Well, there's still time. Um, what advice do you have for someone like an aspiring biblical scholar. And and let's say, apart from the obvious difficulties in the job market, let's assume they know that. What's some advice you have for an aspiring scholar? 
I know this is really hard to say because people are a lot of times when they're aspiring, trying to do a Gumby thing and fit in wherever they're needed, but that the, there needs to be a, a real um, love and commitment of their subject area. I mean, that, mm. that I think shows up when people are just doing something because they're trying to get in with a certain doctoral advisor. That's very mm. different than someone who has a true, um, in a good way, obsession with yeah. their subject matter. Good. All right. I want, I want to switch back to some examples from the book. One of the networks that's very prominent in the Old Testament that you highlight is all the, are all the texts that draw from Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 8, which, which forbids eunuchs, uh, children of illicit unions, and Moabites and Ammonites from entering the assembly of Israel, and then Edomites and Egyptians, after a few generations, they can enter. So this is, <clears throat> and I could see immediately why this would be so uh, influential, because it has to do with how you define the community, who's in, who's out. And, you know, th these are things that any church or ancient um, religious community would have wrestled with. So um, I'd, I'd like to hear you reflect on one of the examples you had in your book, Isaiah 52.1 and Isaiah 56. So 52.1 says, Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Um, so there you have, like, it sounds like you're not going to have these nations coming into Zion anymore. Then 56 opens up, let, you know, pretty soon it's saying, let not the foreigner or the eunuch say that they're excluded, um, but instead that Yahweh would bring them in. So what is Isaiah saying by promising on the one hand that the uncircumcised or defiled would not enter and then asking the people not to exclude the foreigner and the eunuch? How did you wrestle through the seeming tension between those or even contradiction between them? What, what we find there is um, one of those texts is focused on those who are excluded, one's focused on those who are included, but they really are working off of the, the same text. So let me step back from the particulars and I'll get back to the particulars, but this um, idea that there's two kinds of others, uh, that the othering of the biblical writers is there's included others and excluded others. This is widespread or broadcast in the Hebrew scriptures. For example, in um, Exodus chapter 12, uh, there's a clear cut, uh, those residing foreigners that are circumcised must participate in Passover like anyone in uh, like any citizen of Israel, but those who are uncircumcised may not participate. So there's right. a physical sign to mark the insiders, outsiders. And in Deuteronomy 23, as you just mentioned, there's the, and this one's a very difficult text, even though it's quoted quite a bit, because it mentions four particular people groups, mm -hmm. the Ammonites and Moabites, uh, they're excluded, and the Egyptians and the Edomites. But it's actually, there's a narrative explanation with each one of those, and that's mm -hmm. kind of a clue for us of what's going on. But even when we focus on uh, Ezekiel, he excludes in Ezekiel 44, those that are uncircumcised in heart and in flesh. But elsewhere, Ezekiel, even in the vision of the temple, includes residing foreigners, uh, and here I'm talking about Ezekiel 47, right. even going so far as to grant them land, which yeah. erases what makes them a residing foreigner to begin with? 
And then uh, again, in, in the book of Ezra Nehemiah, there's certainly um, an exclusion of some others, but when they celebrate Passover, just like the first Passover, they brought in others who had separated themselves from the um, pollutions of the land and were committed to Torah. I'm here talking about Ezra 6.21. And again, in Nehemiah, and this one's very striking, Nehemiah 9 and 10 are part of the same narrative day. And mm. so in Nehemiah 9, the language is, um, right, that they separated from the seed of Israel, uh, Nehemiah 9 too. But then in uh, Nehemiah 10.28, that seed of Israel who's making this sworn oath in writing includes some of those that have separated themselves from the pollutions of the peoples of the land mm. and come into the community. So even in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have some others who are certainly excluded and other others who are welcome mm. into the community. And so I think part of the problem um, that's been difficult is when these ethnicities are used, these are read ethnically. But in the case of um, Deuteronomy 23, Matt, um, I think that no biblical author among all the biblical authors who cite this, and this is a very widely cited text, mm-hmm. none of them read it literally slash ethnically uh, or bi- biologically. Yeah. They all read it, even the text you just cited, you know, in, in Isaiah 52, the uncircumcised and the defiled shall not enter you again. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not ethnic. That sounds like Exodus 12, the uncircumcised are not welcome. And so if there's a fraternity between the oracle and Isaiah 56, then these are not uncircumcised foreigners that are binding themselves to the Lord because they're never going to enter Jerusalem again. So if this is fitting into the same frame of reference with Isaiah 52, then this has to be those residing foreigners who are, you know, I don't know what the sign is, but it could be circumcision, but I think that um, one of the things that is so interesting, I guess mm-hmm. I'll put it that way, is in Jeremiah chapter 9, at the end of the chapter, Jeremiah lists these four people groups that can't think that circumcision is good enough. That is, there's four people groups right around Israel that practice non-covenantal circumcision, namely mm-hmm. Egypt, Edom, Moab, Ammon. And so I suspect that since these people groups practice non-covenantal circumcision, that's exactly why Deuteronomy 23 gives a rationale to say, if you hate Israel and try to damn Israel like the Ammonites and Mm -hmm. Moabites did, or, and then this part is um, very ironical, if you're a brother like Edom (laughs) or you host Israel as a guest like Egypt did, then you're welcome. And so you have these very ironical rationales given so that even people that don't fit the case. So like Mm -hmm. um, Ruth is a great example. Here's somebody that is a matriarch of um, the son of God, Mm -hmm. the the, the Mm -hmm. Messiah, David. Mm -hmm. And um, she is a Moabite that doesn't fit her own case. Or um, in first Kings chapter 11, the first four treaty wives of, of the list of Solomon's wives are daughter of Pharaoh, um, mm. an Edomite, Ammonite, Moabite, and then two others are thrown in, a Hittite, which is interesting because that's the only Canaanite from the list that w- still functions because 
um, all the ones that were in the land, Solomon had already put those into slavery. So yeah. only the Hittites had still anybody to make a treaty with of the old seven Canaan, Canaanite nations. Hmm. And then the Phoenicians, that kind of shows how the list in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 23, they're not only the Canaanites and only the Moabites and Ammonites, even the good cases, the Egyptians, the Edomites, they're counted as excluded, and even the Phoenicians. So, so just in simple terms, in the scriptures, so far as I know, um, the law of the assembly is never read literally. It's always read mm. symbolically, or mm. it's always interpreted to some kind of thing like Isaiah 52, the uncircumcised and defiled, they're never going to be welcoming you again, ever, because they're represented by the Neo-Babylonians who um, mistreated you. Whereas in Isaiah 56, of course, any eunuch or foreigner, and there it's not residing foreigner, foreigner who binds themselves to the Lord, they have a place better than sons and daughters. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a really, really helpful explanation. Um, and, it, and it also, it makes you go back to Deuteronomy and think, okay, it mentions Moabite and Ammonite, but it also gives a rationale that has to do with hospitality. And so why would it, it, um, it suggests that insofar as even those nations show hospitality, that they're not fitting their own stereotype, right? Like, so they can elect to not act like the historic Moabite or Ammonite and, and act differently. We're putting ourselves kind of almost in the head of Boaz standing out in the mm -hmm. field because here's yeah. this Moabite widow and... Mm -hmm. He's trying to think, the law says, you shall not show mm -hmm. kindness to Moabites. Mm -hmm. So is he going to break the law and let her right. fit in with the residing foreigners and the widows? Or is he going to kick her out? Right. And so he's, he's caught in the horns of this mm -hmm. dilemma when yeah. Ruth is standing there saying, but I'm a foreigner. She stands right in yeah. front of him and says, I'm a foreigner. How can you show this kindness to me? Yeah. It, it suggests a different understanding of even how law worked, doesn't it? It does, yes. Um, and, and I mean, I, I sidestepped all of the big debates on law. I mean, this book mm. is not on um, yeah. deciding the philosophy of how we should interpret law today. Yeah. Um, so I, I, in this particular book, I'm just reading the laws. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll have to deal with how the laws work in some other book. Um, what are the implications of your study for our understanding of how the New Testament interprets the Old so I, I, there is a chapter at the end of this book called Toward the New Testament, where I kind of explore that. And I try not to transgress actually too far into the New Testament, but <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to step toward the New Testament in that chapter. I think um, one of the things that um, becomes more clear is that uh, there's, it's been very easy in the past few decades for New Testament scholars to find a similarity between Second Temple Judaic literature and some uh, hermeneutical phenomenon in the New Testament, mm. and think in terms of dependence or influence. That's entirely inadequate unless it can be shown that both of these um, similar uh, interpretive patterns don't have antecedents in the Hebrew scriptures. Because since everybody's drinking from the same Kool-Aid, I mean, why would anybody be surprised if Second Temple Judaic scholars, uh, scholars in the Second Temple period, I mean, and New Testament writers are following the model of hermeneutical moves within the Hebrew scriptures? And so a lot of the similarities between Second Temple 
uh, Judaic uh, interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures and New Testament interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures are because they're interpreting the Hebrew scriptures the way the Hebrew scriptures interpret the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm not saying that there's never influence between the New Testament and Second Temple um, Judaic interpretive tendencies. There certainly mm-hmm. is. But there has to be some kind of way to say they're not just getting this from their Bible, mm-hmm. that, that, there's, that this is not something that just naturally unfolds out of the Hebrew scriptures or the Hebrew prophets themselves. So I think that's one thing. I think um, another thing that is relatively important is in many cases, not all for sure, but in many cases, New Testament authors are gravitating towards texts in the Old Testament that are either donor texts of interpretation in later Old Testament texts or Mm. the later Old Testament texts that are interpreting these earlier texts. That is, there's, the New Testament authors frequently are gravitating toward cases of um, scriptural use of scripture within the Hebrew scriptures, and they're kind of taking that within the frame of reference of the gospel, and mm. they're interpreting these things even further, or they're doing further mm. exegetical um, maneuvers. They're enhancing further the exegesis that was already started within the prophets or the Psalms. So cases um, where we see this is like the blessing of Judah in the New Testament, or uh, the Ten Commandments, especially Deuteronomy, or the Song of Moses, or the Davidic Covenant, or even the Last Servant Song in Isaiah 53, the New Covenant in Jeremiah, and many Psalms. That is, there's just so many places where the New Testament's not starting from scratch, they're starting Mm. from this interpretive momentum that's already in motion, and they're continuing something that already has interpretive tentacles spread out within the Old Testament. So so they're reading the Pentateuch through the lens of the Psalms rather than always going right back to the Pentateuch. Yeah, and some cases are clearer than others, but we think about, say, the letter to the Hebrews, the author there is almost always talking about Torah, but almost never quotes Torah. So mm-hmm. when he wants to talk about creation, he quotes Psalm 8. Um, yeah. When he wants to talk about the um, uh, coming into the land, he quotes Psalm 95. When he wants to talk about the Mosaic Covenant, he quotes um, Jeremiah 31. When he wants to talk about sacrifice, he quotes Psalm 40. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he wants to talk about Melchizedek, he quotes Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. So these are all Torah texts, but He's dealing with them as they're refracted through these interpretive elements. They're already pre-interpreted or they're already proto-interpreted for some of the things he's going to do with them. And what do you make of that? Why, why read them through that lens rather than going back to the horse's mouth? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why the author of the Hebrews does that as opposed mm-hmm. to others who sure, might sure. go to the donor texts, mm-hmm. but we still have to see these later receptor texts in the Old Testament still might be pulling their thoughts when they go back mm-hmm. to the original donor text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a, a really good question, but I would suspect that part of it is related to genre in some cases, like the Psalms are a very powerful transmitter of uh, mm-hmm. theology. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, we still see it today, but I can certainly see why uh, you know, looking at Christ as this greater one, 
it would be natural to go to the Psalms of worship to deal with these essentially worship issues that are in Torah. I'm not sure. I mean, don't, yeah. uh, don't quote me on anything in Hebrews <laughs> or the New Testament. No, it's so fascinating. But I think, I think that was one of the things that your book really opens up is the, in terms of New Testament use of the old, is the, that tendency to use texts that are already in, interpretive. And yeah, then so to even look, if we can't explain yeah. it, Matt, we should at least yeah. just say it happens a lot. Yeah. Whether yeah. we can explain it or not. Yeah. And, and let's look at the way that works and also draws us into a wider network of alluded to and, and exegeted texts that might have a bearing on our interpretation of that New Testament text then. Yeah. So maybe if I can back up, I think that that New Testament scholars who have been studying the use of scripture in the New Testament have not probably attended enough to the scriptural use of scripture within the Old Testament enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so probably I would hope that that's something that can be moved forward and so mm-hmm. that we can begin to answer the questions, why these texts in some kind of meaningful way? So that's yeah. probably a better answer to your question than the one I just gave a minute ago. No, it's great. Yeah, well, Gary, I really appreciate uh, your your work in this book and, and just personally your uh, impact on me as a early scholar and on an ongoing basis. It's really uh, exciting to... Um, read this book, and I really appreciate it. Appreciate what it. you're saying here, I mean, if you have a student like you, I mean, <laughs> what better thing could you be doing with yourself? Oh no! And uh, teaching a course on Deuteronomy of all yeah. things. Well, that was a that was a, an exciting course. So, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Onscript, and um, all the best to you in your upcoming writing projects. You've got Ezra Nehemiah, and you've got maybe another book you're working on as well. Yeah, I think the only one I'll tell you about is yeah. there's a sister book to this um, book uh, that is uh, the all the texts that are dealt with in this OT use of the OT parallel charts um, color coded with the two Hebrew texts side by side color coded with the English text tweaked side by side color coded so that um, readers who see this, it'll just jump off the page. I mean, this will be something that can really help people that are interested in some of these cases of biblical exegesis kind of get their hands dirty for themselves. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thank you, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.